0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Kino, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's a rather chilly Tuesday morning in San Francisco on uh, December the 6th, 2022. Earlier today, I did a show with the... um, raking journalist uh, new york city-based journalist chloe solvino raw deal about big the big meat the big food industry particularly the big meat farming industry and its brutality it's a shocking story uh hidden corruption corporate greed and the fight for the future of meat It reflects badly on everyone, particularly on us humans in our addiction to meat and our mistreatment of um, the animals. As Chloe told me, she's been to a number of slaughterhouses and their shocking experiences. They speak, I think, of our bizarre symbiotic, morally symbiotic relationship with the animals on the non-human species. On the one hand, we desperately need them. We eat them. We fetishize them. And of course, we mistreat them. Looking at the headlines today on The Guardian newspaper, you see this symbiosis on the one hand, a story about a heroic Pyrenees, great Pyrenees dog, who apparently single-handedly fought eight coyotes trying to prey on his owner's sheep. And on the other hand, a story about Elon Musk's new company, Neuralink, not Twitter, it's probably more of a stain on humanity than twitter if that's possible which uh, faces a federal inquiry after killing 1500 animals in testing this ambivalence is of course deeply troubling and our relationship with other species is complex and fraught with all sorts of uh all sorts of uh, moral shamefulness which is dealt with in part in uh the book we're talking about today by my guest esther wolfson it's called Between Light and Storm, How We Live. It might be also How We Live and Die with Other Species. Esther is joining us from a chilly Aberdeen in the northern part of Scotland. Esther, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Esther, I- I'm not sure. I-, I don't suppose you've you've read this book. Uh, no, wrote, I haven't.
1: I was just thinking I would very much like to read it.
0: Um, you're an expert on um, on our relationship with other species you've written many other books including corvus uh, a life with birds how do we make sense of this is this the greatest stain you think on humanity more than anything else we haven't exactly behaved ourselves as a species but in our treatment of other animals and particularly in factory farming in the early part of the 21st century it's certainly
1: one of them um yeah factory farming is an egregious crime against the animal world, and it's also very dangerous. Um, but when, you come to, when one comes to talk about um, stains on humanity, I mean, it's been going on for so long, and um, that was one of the things that I was interested in writing about. Why is it? I, I, it's a very difficult thing to understand if you have any sensibility at all about the lives of other species.
0: And that is what your book in part is about it's a, a history of our relationship with other species you begin as so many of these kinds of histories do with our with the Bible what does the Bible tell us about our relationship with other species
1: well that's it's um that's a, quite a, a difficult one um, it depends which which well, Bible. Genesis,
0: I know you 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 take your reader from Genesis to climate change so let's begin with Genesis I mean there's a lot to cover. We're not gonna be able to cover all of it in this yeah. conversation.
1: Well, one of the things that I tried to do in the book is to trace where our ideas came from about um, other species. Um, well, how Western ideas developed from the time of the Greeks onwards. And really, as far as the West's concerned, the, the significant aspect of our thinking really you can trace back to the Bible. Uh, Genesis, well, the Old Testament, because the thinking of Judaism, Christianity, and and Islam are actually quite different when it comes to um, an approach to other species. Um, Judaism has, both Judaism and Islam are very similar in that they have got, or they did mention and have laws about how you treat other species, Christianity has none. And that is one of the one of the, the, the ways in which you can trace back the, the history of lack of concern about animals, because when you don't have any law at all about it, then it's a free-for-all. And it's very it's interesting tracing the, the history through. Um, oh, yeah, I, I, I've never really school
0: thought school. about that, uh, Esther. but Not that I'm a, a Bible expert, but it's definitely true in the in the Christian tradition. Why why is there nothing on other species? Well, what's your your take? Is it simply a sort of an, a, an obsessively anthropocentric text and way of no. thinking?
1: Yes, uh, and the thing is that I think. What it boils down to is the question of who has a soul and who has not, and if you do not have a soul, then it doesn't matter what happens to you, because without a soul you have got no, uh, no possibility of an afterlife, also the idea that, that um, humans being um, made in the image of God, well, you know, if, if we are, then nothing else is much to their detriment and that is where the idea of human exceptionalism comes from that you know that humans are exceptional because they are made in the image of god have souls and nothing else does And it's and interesting
0: because in in the bible we're in the christian tradition we're told to be sympathetic to um, those less fortunate than us the poor the infirm the old the young Yes. But not to other species, it, it doesn't go beyond humanity, if that's the right word.
1: No, and I mean, it's, of course it's, you know, the, the, the question, there's a, I think a bifurcation between ideas of soul and so on, and the fact that it's just expedient, you know, if you happen to like eating animals or hunting or whatever, it is very much easier to believe that these are not sentient creatures, that they don't matter. And that very much, you know, runs through the whole history of of our relationships with other species. Basically, in every religion, it's not just in Christianity. And, um, you know, the, the ideal is that you treat them properly, but when it comes to it, it's not necessarily the case.
0: What about in the Old Testament then? How did that tradition treat animals differently? How did it, perhaps?
1: Well, in uh, the you
0: know, having. More respect, or less of a concrete boundary between human beings and other species.
1: In Judaism, there are laws about how you treat animals called *sabbat* and things like you know um, that you shouldn't take birds from from nests. You shouldn't the the famous one about um, searing the calf in its mother's milk and. I mean, some very basic things about not hacking bits off animals when they're still alive. But the war, you know, I think um, Moses Maimonides laid some of this down in the, in the you know what's called the Shulchan the the table of laws. Islam has got some very similar ideas about um, about how he treats other species.
0: We've done a number of shows on. We've done shows on everything, particularly on uh, other religions. We did a show recently with M- Richard McCarthy, an American uh, who spent some time in Japan. He wrote a book called Kuni, The Japanese Vision and Practice for Urban Rural Reconnection, Rethinking the Relationship Between Towns and Countryside. Less interested in animals, but certainly the the Buddhist tradition is quite different in terms of our relations with... Uh, uh, other species, perhaps uh, Esther, you might say something about that. Explain why. why. Why are other religious traditions quite different in terms of thinking? Well, that?
1: That, that's quite a difficult one. Um, Eastern, the Eastern view of life is just very different. Not being uh, monotheistic in, in um, the way that that uh, Christianity, Judaism are, are makes a very big difference because you're not bound by the, you know, by these ideas of the soul and the image of God and so on. And, um, Buddhism, certainly the, you know, I, the idea that, that, you know, you, you treat other creatures properly is very basic kind of idea.
0: So your book is, as I said, a history of this relationship between us and other species. You begin with Genesis. What other dates or moments in this history do you think are salient? What are the highlights or the lowlights?
1: Mm, well, um, well, I mean, the, the Greeks had interesting things to say about vegetarianism and so on. Um, I suppose that, that one of the significant moments is Descartes, who formulated the idea of you know, the better machine, you know, the creatures were and the Cartesian ideas were ex- popular because, as I say, they're expedient. If, if you believe that, you can do anything to other species. Um, yeah, I mean, Descartes was a, was a very enthusiastic vivisectionist himself, and has written some, you know, appalling descriptions of his experiments on, on other species. And it's, I mean, it is very difficult to read these things. And he, you know, talks about, about cutting creatures up and so on, obviously before anaesthetic. Not to be able to do that without realising that they feel pain and are sentient, difficult to imagine.
0: Esther, do you think that that... um insensitive if that's the right word cartesianism this complete lack of respect or concern with the pain and suffering of other species is that built into the european enlightenment
1: to some extent yes why i have i don't know i don't know Well, i mean i presume it is simply the continuation of the belief that we are that there is such a separation between the human and the animal world that there are no laws, that there are no restraints.
0: And what's an alternative tradition to Cartesianism? Descartes, of course, was not universally popular, a controversial man, Mm -hmm. controversial set of theories. Might we return to perhaps a more politically incorrect romanticism, love of nature, embrace, of a different world, uh, uh, yeah. an anti-Cartesian
1: world. Well, I mean, again, that, that's a difficult one because, it, you know, the Romantic tradition is very much about the land and you know, the the, you know, the morality pertaining to it, and much less about animals. These are it's a very difficult one to 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 figure because it's so ingrained. The idea that you know you can do anything—that it hardly comes in. Of course, you have um, some Christians who, or well, in fact, you know, obviously now you do, but but um, you did have people who questioned, but not any great effect.
0: What about if not the theory, the practice um, of pre-industrial? western man and, and maybe there's a, a gendered element here too in terms of their respect and love of their animals whether they're horses or dogs when did this all begin and perhaps in the domestication of of, of other species
1: very early i mean they're very early um, there's very early evidence of uh people keeping pets uh you know findings in graves of of People buried with their dogs say um, the Romans were extremely fond of 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 their power I mean, you know, the the relation the relation between humans and their pets say has always been quite a strong one. It's just when you come to other species. I mean, you know, it's it's very much the same today that there are certain creatures that we um, for whom we have love and respect and virtually nothing else. You know, dogs dogs and cats, of course, mainly. Um, And people who purport to be animal lovers because they like dogs, will have no hesitation in either treating other species badly or um, not being particularly concerned about them.
0: Esther, uh, a couple of months ago, did a show with Justin Gregg. He he has a new book. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. if Nietzsche was a narwhal. Um, it's a book about what animal intelligence reveals about human stupidity. He's not a great fan of Nietzsche. Uh, I, I'm more an admirer of Nietzsche, although I can't claim to be an expert. Do you think Nietzsche was an interesting figure in terms of recognizing this historic criminality of our species? Of course, he oh, famously nice. went mad in embracing a, a horse. Um, uh, Was it, it, shall we say, post-Christian thinkers like Nietzsche in the late 19th, early 20th century that our relations with other species began to perhaps change or adapt in some way?
1: Yeah, actually, I'm just looking, I've got a a quote from Nietzsche up here. We do not regard the animals as moral beings, but do you suppose the animals regard us as moral beings, an animal which could speak, would say... Humanity is a prejudice of which we animals at least are free. Which is an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, that is exactly the question of, of um, animal intelligence and how we look at animal intelligence and our own intelligence is, is so fascinating because we have this very firm belief, uh, as I mentioned, in human exceptionalism. You know, we are, by virtue of our great brains, vastly superior now the evidence doesn't really bear this out because we are the only species that has actually destroyed basically we've destroyed the branch upon, we, upon which we sit we have destroyed or we are in the process of destroying the planet on which we live which no other species has done.
0: Esther we've done a number of shows on Charles Darwin a great 19th century British yeah. naturalist um I'm thinking this through now and occurred to me before we talk, but I'm assuming that in many ways Darwin is the light before the storm or the storm before the light. How does Darwin and Darwinism change everything?
1: Well, clearly by making the connection between um, evolution and humans and taking away the case for, for exceptionalism, because we are, you know, part part of the universe rather than being an exception in it. That's, and of course, you know, the religious um, aspect of it, the you know, the horror of uh, Christianity discovering or being told that that uh, of Darwin's theories. That that was why, because suddenly we were something we were part of uh, a wider world.
0: So we're really all living in Charles Darwin's world. He was an interesting figure, of course. Uh, He only went on one great trip and discovered many species, also was a a farmer, a lover of the land. Does his life tell us anything about our relations, our flawed relations with other species?
1: Oh, very much so. He he wrote a lovely little monograph um, about worms. And in which he says worms have memory, they're intelligent, you know, things that, that you know, most humans find you know, well, strange and unbelievable. And, you know, he was very interested in the, you know, all the, the smaller aspects of of, um, of the animal kingdom as well. And, oh yeah, a huge amount to tell us about, about it.
0: We, we did a show, uh with a woman called Karen Backer. Um, she's a scientist at, in yes, Canada. Yes. Uh, she has a new book out, The Sounds of Life, how digital technology is bringing us closer to the worlds of animals and plants. She suggests that with digital technology, we're learning to be able, not just to talk to the animals, but the plants. If we can, and maybe this comes back to, to Nietzsche, what do you think they'd say? Would we be able, if, if we could share a language would we be able to talk to other species what would we say and what would they say
1: well what would we say well what should we say might be more, more cogent uh, we should say I'm terribly sorry we've we've done this and what they might say I can't <laughs> imagine I think it would depend very much on the species all
0: the chickens in in the factories the billions of chickens yeah, exactly, the chicken wings yeah. that we voraciously yes, exactly
1: exactly. Um, I mean, the, the creatures that I know most about are, are the Crow family. And um, um, they have, certainly have opinions. I think that they would have quite a lot to say about our treatment of them.
0: You wrote an interesting piece in The Guardian, Love You to Death How We Hurt the Animals We yeah. Cherish on Dogs. Do you think for us to change, we need to also rethink our relationship with our pets? I, I don't know what the case is in Aberdeen in Northern Scotland. But certainly on the West Coast of the United States, people now carry their dogs around with them in their backpacks. They bring them to dinner. They feed them at the table. Um, We have a fetish, particularly with the Internet, with cats. Um, Do you think one way to move forward to a more to a better relationship with other species is, is, is to stop anthropomorphizing other creatures and recognizing that they're simply different?
1: Very much, so uh, it's a big problem. Here um, during the pandemic, people bought dogs and cats, but particularly dogs for companionship. And of course, unscrupulous breeders were breeding creatures without regard to uh, their future health and charging fortune for them. And there were some you know appalling cases of cruelty. And now that we are in a really serious economic situation, people are abandoning dogs, taking them to shelters, in fact, th- they thousands. And it is this, I, this, this feeling that you know, they're dispensable, that you, know, you can breed them, buy them, discard them. It's, it's a, 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 a very difficult moral question. you know, I'm sure, I'm certain people, you know, they they love their dogs, but when it comes to it, have they thought about, well, about the breeding? Uh, One of the the things that I talk about in the book is people's fondness, uh, the fashion for flat-nosed dogs, brassicophallic dogs, who have hideous health problems. But people want these dogs, and people, and so they're bred, and, you know, they can't breathe, they have a huge number of, of um, physical problems. They shouldn't be bred. And they, I mean, uh, you know, a vast number of vets say this, they should not be bred and they should not be bought, but people want them because they're cute. This, the word cute has possibly done more to damage the animal kingdom than anything else. Um, the idea that this is the, this is the standard which we, we aim for, to have something that's cute.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think we should um, ban the word cute. Tell me a little bit about your life, uh, Esther. Um, you, you've you dedicated it to, to, to writing and studying other species. You wrote, as I said, Corvus, a life with birds uh, in field notes from a hidden city. Uh, you write about gulls and rats and slugs and snails. Uh, were you a young girl when you discovered that we weren't actually the center of the universe? When did you suddenly...
1: No, I don't think I've ever thought that we were the center of the universe, but, I mean, I hadn't actually thought... I mean, we had dogs when I was a child, and I hadn't really thought that much about any of it until, with my own children, we... um Oh, somebody gave us some doves, and then, you know, it kind of escalated from there, and they wanted rats, and, and we... I suppose for some reason we devoted a lot of time to them we spent a lot of time we were given a, a fledgling rook who um, was with me for for 30 years just she died actually just 3 years ago just before the pandemic and it was it was really through that through this kind of close contact with creatures that uh, yeah, i began to think hang on the you know, there's there's something to these beasts there's something they are not the kind of um, insentient creatures that that one would imagine. There has, I mean, in the, in the last few years, there's been a lot of research done into bird, birds and and even neuroanatomy, and some, which has proved that they are considerable. Well, I use the word thinkers, but they are they have big brain capacities. But you still hear people talking about bird brains. You still hear pe- the these ideas are very difficult to change, and I suppose that's what I've been trying to do in the books. Alter alter the the um, perception of creatures.
0: Yeah, it's important work you're doing, and many others, of course. I'm sure you're familiar no. with the work of Simon Gornay. Oh was yes, a show, wonderful writer and wonderful person. Oh, she wrote a wonderful book,
1: book about about the octopus.
0: Right, and hawks and octopus. Yeah. I just actually came back from Costa Rica, spent some time not oh, shooting wow. birds, but photographing them. I wonder if there's something about birds that resonate with us because they're, they really are, they, they come out of dinosaurs. I mean, they existed before us as as a species. Yeah. Do you think that they somehow trigger something odd in humans um, because they, that they came before us and they no doubt will exist after we've gone?
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it, again, this is an interesting one. In this country, there's a fixation about the idea of what called songbirds. Now, I mean, the people who use the term songbirds, I mean, they mean blackbirds, robins, you know, the small passerines. In fact, the term songbirds means something entirely different. It's, you know, a classification uh, um, of a particular kind of bird. And a certain strand of the media here will go on and on about, oh, how our songbirds are being killed off by magpies, say. Magpies are songbirds themselves, but this is beside the point. And you know, it's, again, it's the cute. We, pref- we like the cute. We don't. People don't like corvids, crows, jackdaws, magpies, because they're not deemed to be cute.
0: Right, and that's what Montgomery says about hawks, is they teach us a different way to love, a much more aggressive way, which certainly is anything but cute.
1: That's right. I mean, you know, you cannot love the natural, you cannot appreciate the natural world and have the word cute in it. You just can't, because the natural world is not, and neither should it be cute.
0: Esther, what do you think? There's a a new fashion of of books about what we can learn from humans. It's part of I think our, our post-Darwin culture. Uh, Ed Yong has an important oh, yes. new book out called An Immense World. He was on the show. He talked about how we can develop empathy through learning about other creatures. Yeah. Carl Safina, another influential now, oh, yes talks about humility. Do you share their sort of their, their ideas that we can learn "Quote unquote," the values of animals—humility, or, or or sympathy, or um,
1: empathy—completely. And what has stopped us from being able from doing so is the belief that we're the only ones who, who feel. But if you, I mean, if you observe other species and see, I mean, it's it an obvious thing that that in order to live to survive the for them to have, you know, mutual empathy and all the rest of it is, you know, is, is going to be a, a good maneuver. But it's been it's taken far, far too long for us to, to realize that. I mean, we, you know, it, in fact, it, it's rather tragic. We are realizing this when we're on the brink of destroying so many species. I mean, I, I have, you know, you just have to to live with a, a creature for a time, uh, to recognize its emotional capacities and without anthropomorphizing, you know, just simple observation can tell you this.
0: I wonder if there's something else to it too. We did a show with the English journalist Jenny Kleeman. She has a new book out, Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, about our digital future in which uh, we're inventing smart machines that perhaps will compete and perhaps even enslave us is there something about the world that we're talking about today where we recognize where the equals the 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 co-residents on the planet of other species and our technological prowess in inventing post-human forces i, I don't I'm wary about calling them species but robots that replicate everything that we do
1: Well, I, you know, again, it's uh, there. There is a certain irony that this should be a consideration when there are plenty, of, well, vast number of species about whom we know nothing at all. We still don't know, and we still don't know of their existence. We are causing them to become extinct as we are before we 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 know anything about about them, um, and. In a way, it's just a token further token of human arrogance that, that that we should see a technological future before we have taken the trouble to um, to understand what kind of world we actually live in. do you think um
0: Esther, that we're on the brink of a a new way of thinking eh? one of the cliches is we're beyond left and right, but beyond capitalism and socialism, perhaps? the great issue of the 21st century is this issue of our relations with other species george Monbiot was on the show recently i'm sure you're familiar with his work he has a a new book out regenesis feeding the world without devouring the planet but i wonder if regeneration is a is a an, an even deeper philosophical movement that might enable us to confront these demons that you've wrote written about in your book and, and so many other authors from ed young and carl safina to justin gregg simon gomery also another woman who we had on the show jack jackie higgins also writes about this um are we on the brink of uh of, of a new I, i'm wary about calling it a renaissance because of course with the enlightenment you go back to cartesianism and the cruelty of that age but could we on, be on the brink of something rather interesting rather positive rather than negative light rather than storm
1: I would like to think so but when you talk about you know beyond right and left and capitalism that is a, that I find a very difficult one to imagine because I don't know what would have to happen you know beyond a terms of revolution and so on for anything very much to change, I mean, things change so slowly, even though climate change and so on are overtaking us. I don't. I really don't know at what stage we'd have, or what stage we'd have to reach before anything would change in a positive direction. I mean, I'm, you know, you know. Of course, I know George Monbiot's work, and um, but uh, perhaps I'm more of a cynic. But um, I find it. I find it very difficult I mean the power and money in fact I was interested to, uh, to see that that you picked up um, the, uh, the thing about Neuralink and um, yeah yeah the you know animal cruelty which was I mean, shocking yeah well, Musk,
0: uh, Elon Musk is a direct descendant I think of um, of Descartes and that
1: sort yeah of- well
0: Uh, that sort of hard cartesianism and of course he's exporting it to other planets i mean that's another element here what happens if we find other species on other planets as well Well, god knows what will happen there.
1: yeah i mean it's it's it just seems so retrograde i mean to 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 do that without thought now just seems so careless so almost vindictive when the move should be towards consideration for other species. I suppose one can expect no better from some people.
0: Yeah, I I don't suppose Elon Musk will read your book. I think everybody else needs to, Between Light and Storm, (laughs) How We Live with Other Species. Uh, As I mentioned at the beginning, um, Esther, you're in Aberdeen, and uh, as I suggested to Mm you before we went live, I once went through Aberdeen on my way to the Orkneys, another beautiful part of the world. Um, we talked about Darwin discovering Darwinism essentially in Patagonia and his travels around the world. Do we all need to leave the city? Do we go need to go to I mean, if we all go to Patagonia, yeah. of course, that's a catastrophe too, or the Orkneys, or at least out into the fields. Yeah. Is that some way of, of dealing with it?
1: Absolutely not. This is something that they, another really interesting one. You know, what is wilderness? What is I, I'm I'm a real kind of city person, and you can live. You can find wildness in a city. Urban species are every bit as fascinating and wonderful as as once you find a Patagonia. Look, uh, and also, I mean, we have to stop traveling the way we do, even you know, driving around and so on. So. I, you know, I, I sort of maintain a, a kind of Taoist perspective on this. Stay, you know, in your area and keep it small.